need a little bit more assistance, if I could have some volunteer scripture readers, that would be awesome. Um, most of these I can remember, um, but I think the speed of needing to, I, I'm not trying to rush the message, but just kind of like me not having to go find them. Um, I'm pretty sure um, we could do this. If I could get someone to pick up Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, Matthew chapter 13, verse 15. Matthew chapter 19, and remember what you have, a volunteer for also Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. Yeah, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 25. Um, and uh, I may need some help with... Yeah, I, I think I got that one. I got that one on auto, on auto uh, repeat. Hebrews eleven six. If somebody wants to grab it up, that could be great. Nothing wrong with us hearing the word of God freshly read into our ears. All right. Wait, just before I get started. Um, hey, again, I just want to celebrate the power of Christian community one more time. Brother Bill Ewing, is it? Elder Bill Ewing came up to me after the message, and he pointed out two very keen um, um, exegetical discoveries in the text that I glazed over, and I want to share them with you, and thank you for bringing it to my attention. One, he mentioned the, the, sleep, the, the sleep of Jesus. Remember it said that he had, you know, I, I mentioned he had been preaching all day, and so the humanity of Jesus is, is illustrated there because he gets tired just like we do, and I think that's important for us to note that he's in the same boat with us. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He gets sleepy too, right, uh, and, and fatigued. And another point he made was that um, this urgent calling on him that, hey, Lord, don't you care that we perish? And that if we don't call upon the Lord, we will perish. Like that is a real thing. That's not just their, that's not just a fictional moment that their fears created for them. That is a potent gospel reality that our fears uh, excuse me, that a failure to call upon the Lord will indeed result in our perishing. And I think that, thank you for bringing that up, because the word perish, you know, that, that, that's got mileage. We see that a lot, right? So, so, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believe in him shall, shall not perish, right? Uh, and that's not what he desires. And so thank you, Brother Bill Ewing, for bringing that out um, uh, to our attention. Glad to be able to um, to share that. Also, uh, this brother here brought out to me just another uh, nice visual from the storm message, and that is uh, when there's it was something about directing the sails. Help me out. Say it again. You can't control the wind, but you can adjust the sails. You can adjust the sails. I like that. I like that. And so I think uh, the community of faith needs to hear these insights uh, because I think that they are very potent in the way that we handle ourselves during storms. Amen. Thank you, brothers, for speaking to me and sharing those. If anybody else shared something briefly and I didn't. Uh, mention it, please forgive me. Those were just fresh in my mind, and I really appreciated um, that. Um, let's pray, and then we're going to start on the paralyzed sinner, the paralyzed sinner story from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Remember, I tell you that this won't be kind of low cerebral demand. Like this is, this is, this is, we're on the sliding board, and all you got to do is just kind of let go, and we're just going to go right into lunch. Right. You've already kind of climbed the ladder. Right. <laughs> so uh, here we go. Father, in the name of Jesus, I am thankful to you uh, once again 
for um, uh, just allowing us to just spend time together in your word. Would you now, uh, once again, uh, just just uh, refresh our hearts in, in, in fresh truths concerning your son, concerning yourself, concerning our sin, that we would be um, just all the more equipped for doing great work. Uh, glorify yourself now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're looking for a Bible study rubric, I just thought about this during my time of prayer, um, Bible study rubric, you know, the Bible says about itself, you know, uh, the Bible says about itself, um, um, all scripture is God breathed, inspired of God. And it is good for doctrine or teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Uh, there's lots of great books on the market, lots of beautiful resources that brilliant men and women of God who are gifted to, to see beautiful pictures in Scripture have, have given us and enabled us to, to be able to study the Bible. Uh, and I, I encourage reading and having a ravenous appetite for all those things. But I also deeply encourage to study the Bible based on its own self-testimony. Right. Before you get all fancy and want to learn how to dribble behind the back, look for the five things that the Bible says is already there. Doctrine. What is the Savior saying? What is the what is the Bible saying about what is God saying? Excuse me. In the scriptures about himself. Right. Reproof. What does the Bible say about my sin? Right. The stuff that I need to stop doing. Correction. What is it saying about my need for further sanctification? Because correction, like reproof is the stuff I need to put both feet on the brakes, pull up the emergency and turn to the side and like make an immediate U-turn, right? Right, go in the other direction. But correction, it could be, man, I'm headed, you know, I'm, I'm headed southwest and I need to be going south. I just need to make a little adjustment, right? So, so what does the Bible say? What is the, what is the scripture saying about the Savior? What is it saying about my sin? What is it saying about my need for sanctification? That's correction. And then instruction in righteousness. What is it saying about my, what is it saying about my service? Right? Right? How do I, or so what is it saying about my situation? How do I apply the word to this situation? That's my, you know, uh, instruction in righteousness. That I might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. What is it saying about my service? How does, in all of my Bible reading, how do I now switch that on to be of greater service in the local body of Christ? Right? Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness with an end that I would be thoroughly furnished for every good work, right? So doctrine. So, you know, let's make sure we got it. What does the Bible say about my, what does it say about my savior? Reproof. What does it say about my, my sin? Correction. What does it say about my, my sanctification? Um, uh, instruction. What does it say about my situation? My, uh, so I did say that verse, but, but um, I want to adjust it. I want to make an amendment. Uh, instruction in righteousness, what does it say about my situation that I'm currently in? And then to be thoroughly furnished for every good work, what does it say about my, Brother Ewing? Service. Service. There we go. Got it? You got those. So in Bible study, look for that. Looks for that, right? I mean, so again, have a ravenous appetite, read everything on the market, do what you want to do, um, you know, have like 15 different sheets of paper and, and, and whiteboards, do all of that, do all of it. But just make sure you don't miss the five fundamental things that the Bible says that it came to provide anyway. Um, and it's just the, the basic nutrition of God's word, right? Uh, it's kind of like Briar's ice cream, right? It's supposed to be like just, just milk, uh, ice cream. <laughs> you know what I mean? Look for that. The earnest milk of the word. Uh, and again, that's no shade on any other, uh, author and great work. So 
What do we see in the paralyzed sinner? Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I would just want to read that, and then we're going to go in and pull forward just a couple of truths. No heavy lifting, I promise. Oh, no, I can't promise. Um, and when he returned, that's Jesus, to Capernaum, his hometown, after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them, they came bringing to him. Um, now, I'm from the South, so I say paralytic, but I've been cor- uh, not corrected. I have been uh, exhorted by some of my church to say paralytic, uh, but I still stay with paralytic. Uh, it, just, it just sounds better being from Alabama and Georgia. Uh, so they came bringing him a paralytic uh, carried by four men. And when they could not get near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they uh, had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith. And he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving um, uh, in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, paralytic, um, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take your, up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Um, he said to the paralytic, um, I say to you, rise, uh, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, I do believe that the point of the passage is Jesus clearly proving to the onlooking public that he not only has authority to work miracles over sickness, but that he also has authority over sin. One of the foremost understandings and outcomes of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, remember, messages and miracles. And, and I, I don't want to cheapen the death, burial, and resurrection by calling it a miracle, but let's just say that it is a work that only God can do, period. Uh, one of the great outcomes of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is that he demonstrates victory over sin, death, and the devil. This is, that, that truth is punctuated in his resurrection. This is why it is illogical and unlikely and highly detrimental to the formation of faith to try to separate the good teaching of Jesus from the great work and resurrection of Jesus. It, it, there are many who would think about Jesus and they're fully, fully prepared to concede to him as being a great moral example and a great historical figure, but then they come to kind of a stop when it comes to the reality of the resurrection. Trust me, if you unplug the resurrection from the greater picture of who Jesus is, you don't have a Jesus that you really want. You don't have one that's really useful because it is Jesus who it is, who is one of the great differentiators is Jesus 
leans his whole ministry, his whole ministry is leaning toward the reality of the cross so that every single thing that he said and did finds its apex in the reality that what he said was true. And if what he said was true, then what he's doing is real. And if what he's doing being being raised from the dead, then he has authority over sin, death, and the devil. That the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is substitution. It is voluntary. He did it voluntarily. It is substitutionary. He did it in our place. It is necessary because it is the only thing that could satisfy the wrath of God against humanity. And it is done in victory over sin, death, and the devil. Even for the non-religious, even the atheist recognizes the reality of sin, death, and the devil, even if we don't use the labels of sin, death, and the devil. Here's why. Sin, while we call it in communities of faith, sin, the reality is we all recognize in the existence of our world that there are interactions between human beings that are not just less than ideal, they are bad. Regardless of what, your, what book you read, no one can deny the real existence of brokenness in the world. We call it, according to the biblical description, or the Bible calls it, sin. That's what it is. It misses the mark, right? Um, death. Um, death is a potent, ubiquitous reality for all of mankind, regardless of what book you read or what philosophy you subscribe to. It, it is why we run on a treadmill. It's why we change our diet. It's why we, um, we do all measure of things. We are all trying to lengthen our lives and somehow skirt and avoid death. It's why we have airbags. It's why we buckle our seatbelts. It's everything. We as human beings cannot avert death. It is a great reality in our lives. It's one of the greatest realities that all human beings have to grapple with. We don't like time. We want to look younger. And even if we can't look younger, we want to be younger and feel one. We want to beat it. The most fanciful tales of our society are those about finding the fountain of youth. Or look at all of our superheroes. They are what? Unkillable. Even our entertainment is dripping and saturated with the reality that we are fascinated with the idea of beating sin, death, and evil. What makes the great comic book movies that are uh, that are driving all of us to the, to the... Do you know why? It's not just because they are cinematically done well. Why would such an old theme have such great grip on our society and culture? Because they demonstrate that victory over sin, death, and the devil is possible. Here's how. Trust me. Next time you go see a great superhero movie, what you are watching is your favorite superhero overcome the brokenness in their city or their society. And then you watch them also not only overcome the, the, the existing brokenness, like, you know, big earthquake, the ground opens up, swallows up people. That wasn't caused by anybody. But then, you know, there's some evil person. There is a caricature that's in a room pulling levers and causing ugly stuff to happen on the earth. And the superheroes go do what? They go get that person and bring him under arrest. It's a typification of the devil, right? Our society is dripping with the need for gospel. And then, and then death. All of our superheroes are immortal. We are fascinated with the three fundamental things that only the death, burial, and resurrection can address. And I don't believe that the script writers are reading the Bible and then running to their computers. I believe that it is embedded within the hearts of men to have an appetite for eternity. 
even if they don't know the address of where these ideas are coming from, because we have been made in the image of God, and therefore we yearn for redemption. Or as the Bible would put it, the, 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 son, the, 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 the earth itself is yearning or crying out for the revelation of the sons of men. So the next time you go and watch a superhero movie, go look for gospel themes. The next time you see anything, I, I, I'll give you more. Man, this has nothing to do with Mark. I thought, I was gonna, I thought it was going to be so easy. I want, I want you to look at, um, I, I want you to look at, uh, I, I'm trying to think of another place where there is just saturated with gospel reality, even though no one would ever um, uh, appreciate that. I, I, that's enough. Marvel is good enough. I, I want you to just, just think about the great movies of our time are about someone overcoming sin, death, and the devil. There is a person who typifies wrongdoing. There is the effects of wrongdoing, and then there is this fascination with immortality. And Jesus didn't watch any movies before he died on the cross. So he ain't borrowing that theme from anybody. He's not cutting and pasting that to make up a good story so he can sell more Bibles. You see what I'm saying? He had, this had, there's no copyright infringement that can be laid at the feet of the Savior. He's the original writer of these stories for humanity, and we can't help it. And so some of the best-selling material that fills all of our hearts are those that takes the ethics of the Savior and the cross and puts it in cartoon or in entertainment form. We love a great story of overcoming, right? Someone who started low, and now they finish in first place. We love it. I would love to go, I'm a, I haven't tried it yet, but I'd love to just kind of go through like all five of the Rocky series and pull out all of the gospel of, you know, <laughs> uh, amen. Uh, but we have some other business here. All right, Mark chapter two, here we go. All right, so I believe that Mark chapter two, verses one through 12 are the, 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 the parabolic, if, it's, if we want to call it, it's not a parable. But it is, it's not a parable that Jesus told. It's a real story of Jesus. But I'm going to say that Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, is the parabolic backdrop that provides uh, the truth for the principle that James said in chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. Confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. Now think about this. you got a guy who is paralyzed and four other men get together and bring him to Jesus, and he gets healed. Follow that very carefully. Think about that. Confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. And now let's work through the story. Um, in my life as a believer, I believe there are at least four kinds of people or at least people with these four traits that I need participating in my life. Uh, we need people in our lives that have these features, people of faith, people of fortitude, people of follow through, people of fellowship, people of faith, people of fortitude, people of follow through and people of fellowship. Why? The Bible tells us in this story that there was a brother. So Jesus is preaching. It's a packed house. There's not even room at the door. And it says there's a man who is paralyzed and four brothers get together, put him on a stretcher and bring him to where Jesus is. 
I believe that this is a beautiful picture of the role of Christian community. Here are four brothers who have come together in community to bear the brokenness or to bear a a, a brother up who cannot get himself to Jesus. Right? We need people of faith. In other words, those four men would not have been willing to come together in community and pick this man up if they all four were not convinced that Jesus could give this man exactly what he needed. I need people of faith in my life when I have been paralyzed by the grips of sin. I need that. I need people of faith. I need people who are trusting God on my behalf. What do I mean? The Bible says that uh, while Jesus was preaching and the house was packed, there was no room at the door, that the four came, brought the man there, pulled off pieces of the roof. Jesus looked up in the middle of the message and said, he, he said, the Bible says he didn't just see their ingenuity. It says he saw their what? He saw their faith. Jesus healed the paralytic. I'm saying that for you. I'm trying really hard. Jesus healed the paralytic on the premise of the faith of men who pulled the top, the rooftop. It was their faith that he saw. And I'm just asking you to think carefully what that means about us coming together in prayer for the person who cannot come to the Lord or is not coming to the Lord based on their own energy and will. They are currently down. They cannot walk. They are for whatever. Now, notice that the scriptures don't tell us what the cause of the paralysis. They don't tell us he was bitten by something. They don't say it's a skiing accident. They don't tell us any of the details because that's not the point. The point of the passage is that Jesus is Lord over sin. He's Lord over sickness. The two must have some kind of, at least for this story, whether the two have a correlation or not, he's Lord over sin and he's Lord over sickness, but he also is the Lord who sees the faith of others and will benefit somebody else based on our collective faith. As a very individualist society as we are, I want to caution us to not spend all of our prayer juice, if you will, on our own issues. Will you collectively spend time praying for somebody else's? Because the Lord sees that faith. We need people of faith in our life, people that are willing to carry us. But we need another kind of person, and we need need another kind of person in our life. We need people of fortitude. People who are willing to carry my burdens when I can't walk. Will you be that kind of person for someone else? I need people of fortitude. These four were willing to carry this person. I am certain that these brothers would have rathered or could have said, man, I'm going to see Jesus preach. I heard he's back home. I'm going to try to get a spot before the place fills up. You know how popular he is. I'm sure to sure that these individual brothers could have said, I'm just going to climb on the roof and try to get uh, uh, an aerial view of Jesus. I'll be in the nosebleed seats, but at least I'll be there to hear this great message. So these brothers set aside their own convenience to carry the burden of another. They are men of fortitude. They're people of fortitude. They're willing to carry that burden. We are called to carry the burdens of one another. We need people to follow through in our lives. Man, I tell you, I'm trying hard not to be that person who gets a text that says, will you pray for such and such? And I do. And that is it. I'm through. But what about people of follow through? Notice how uh, uh, these are people who are willing to work through obstacles with me and for me. The Bible says that these four men are carrying this guy. They get to the event at Jesus's house and it's like, oh, man. 
Well, you know, you know, Jesus is going to make multiple stops, man. He never just preach at one spot. You know, we could just take James, you know, back to the house and lay him down and we'll try to maybe we'll get over to the pool of Bethesda first. <laughs> That's a biblical joke. You get to the pool of Bethesda, right? Boo, boo, boo. I love it. All right. I mean, we in the house. Right. But think about this. They saw obstacles and this is nah. Well, we don't just because we can't. But they weren't satisfied with being in the parking lot of, of the auditorium. Right. It was like, no, we, 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 we got to be we got to have front row seats. We want this. Jesus needs to see this guy. And so they climb up, they climb through obstacles. And I'm asking you, I'm begging you that this is one of the great features of Christian community. It's not all not just intercession collectively, but also not this faith and trust in God just as hard for the well-being of others as you would for yourself. But also the, the ability to work through obstacles that may, that may come, that make carrying the burdens of others deeply inconvenient. But then guess what else we need? We need fellowship. Now, I know what that feels like. It's like, oh, yeah, we do that all the time. We had pie last night. We're having lunch today. We had breakfast this morning. No, 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 no. I'm talking about another grittier kind of fellowship. Do you notice that these four men in this brother's, this, this, this paralyzed man's life, that they are collect, they are aware of one another. Where am I going? I believe that today we can have great fellowship and accountability in silos. In other words, I call James and I say, hey, brother, pray for me. I'm struggling with pornography. And don't nobody else in Connecticut know? And don't nobody else in Georgia know? And I pick up another friend from from elementary school who I found as a believer who lives all the way over in L.A. Hey, man, pray for me right now. My my marriage is kind of, you know, messy right now. Would you pray for me? And then I kind of cleverly and quietly tell somebody else in my local fellowship, would you pray for us in this season? We're just kind of going through kind of the perfect storm. <laughs> but I never tell them what's really going on in my life. And then, I, you know, and then maybe I just kind of subtly intimate to somebody else. Hey, this is a tough season in our life, man. Just, you know, keep me lifted up. Oh, yeah, I got four people involved in my life, but they ain't able to collectively carry the stretcher because they don't know all the particulars and they don't know each other. So I've disabled a degree. I've paralyzed the power of accountability and fellowship because I'm trying to parse out pieces of the story to different folks so that they don't all know each other. Does this make sense? Do you see what I'm getting to about the power of Christian community? We yeah, and, and trust me, there there are you, I may call somebody in Connecticut to share something deep that is going on in my life because maybe uh, uh, I, I trust these brothers as elders. And, 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 I, and we have relationship capital and it is a deep situation that I that I'm needing to that I need to work through. And I want some encouragement from them. On. But those can't be my only places of accountability, disclosure and fellowship. Therefore, the scriptures say, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. The idea is to do this in community that you may be healed. Well, how does healing take place through the confession of my faults one to another? Because there is a collective Praying and holding one another counter, uh, uh, accountable that allows us to get to Jesus all together. And it's very powerful. And why do we need this? I believe this passage also gives us a much clearer picture than we might want to believe about how sin works in our lives. You ready? I'm going to give you four realities of sin 
One, two, three, four. Yes. Sin, if you're, if you're, if you're a note taker, write these down and then I'll, I'll walk them through. I believe what we see in this brother is we see, we, I, of all the things that could have been typical of this passage, Jesus chose this particular formulation, right? Um, we see a man who is paralyzed. He gets brought down through the roof. And upon first glimpse, Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't give an outline. He doesn't go, first, I'm going to forgive his sins, and then I'm going to heal his paralysis. No, people don't even know where he's going. He just, first order of business goes, he sees their faith, and he says, brother, your sins are forgiven. Now, can you imagine how anticlimactic that would have been for the people in the audience? They've seen Jesus heal before. This isn't new business that Jesus knows how to heal. And these guys go through all of this effort to let him down. And Jesus goes, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine how, how people in the audience would have would have like, ooh, we were hoping for something a little bit more, you know, enormous than that. And then he hears the hearts of the scribes in the audience saying, who can do that? This man is ridiculous. But just so they know that the unseen work of forgiving sin is just as vivid as the scene work of dealing with sickness. He punctuates the message with this miracle of healing the man who's in paralysis. But this is what sin does. Very much like paralysis, sin immobilizes. Sin also does something else very similar to paralysis. It desensitizes. Sin also does something else. It masquerades. I'll explain later. And sin trivializes. And here's what I mean. Sin immobilizes because it makes it impossible to walk upright before God. Psalm 66 and 8 says, um, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayer. It immobilizes my walk before the Lord. If I'm holding on to and cherishing sin in my heart, the Lord does not hear my prayer. If I'm loving, longing for, clinging to, not willing to let go of sin in my heart, it says if, the, if I regard, if I regard, if I value sin, that he will not hear my part. That's Psalm 66, 18. Jesus said it this way over in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Hey, if you've got any issue at work within your life, lay down that issue. He says, go address that issue and then come back and give your gift at the altar. Sin, resident sin in the life, immobilizes my ability to really walk upright before God. Or as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So, so sin is actually a reflection of faithlessness. God, I don't really believe you at your word, right? Because what, are, what, is the, you know, what does the Bible say? It, speaks to my, it tells me about the Savior and it tells me about my sin. And so if I stop short of just it telling me about the Savior, but I don't want to hear what the Bible is saying about my sin, I don't believe God. I don't believe what God has said about himself, because if I believe what the Bible says about the Savior, I believe that he is holy. Right. And so sin immobilizes. It puts me in a place where I can't advance forward in my walk. It also desensitizes. It desensitizes. It dulls my responsiveness even to the most obvious. Did I have anybody pull up Matthew chapter 13, verse 15? Can I you may.
That's right. So sin desensitizes. It lessens the effect of my faculties to fully appreciate and discern truth. It just kind of, I don't even feel it. Now think about it. We're still working with the the model of paralysis. It isn't just the inability to walk. It's also the inability to feel. But it also, sin also masquerades. It makes us look at our legs and Jesus is looking at our life. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. Uh, does anybody have that one? Did I give that one? Let's go. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. You may be wondering what in the world does this have to do with sin and how I said that it masquerades. Now, here's a young man who obviously knows the Bible well, seems to have gotten it together, and he's so confident in his ability, he's so confident in his current life that it is sin-free that he's willing to, not like Nicodemus, go meet up with Jesus in private and say, hey, what's up? I know you're the real deal. He comes to Jesus in public and goes, so what must I do to be saved? And then he and Jesus have this interplay about the pretty much the rubric of what real salvation or what real relationship with God must look like. They have this little tennis match around the Ten Commandments. Now, I want you to notice something about the story with the rich young ruler there. The Ten Commandments have two halves. The top half is about my vertical relationship with God. You should have no other gods before me. You should have no, no, no graven images. You should have no God. You should, uh, um, you should um, uh, oh gosh, come on, help me out. You, 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 you need to uh, uh, keep my name. You um, remember the seventh day, keep it holy. You got to also keep my name um, sacred. The top half of the commandments are very vertical in, in their orientation, right? It's all about idolatry and not having anything else before the Lord. In this little intellectual or theological tennis match between the rich young ruler and Jesus, they only cover the bottom half, the horizontal laws. Like here are all the things that I do toward my fellow man. And then Jesus takes the summation of the top half of the commandments and says, well, well, give, take all of the stuff you've got and give it away. In other words, let's make sure you're not idolizing 
anything in your life. This is what sin does. See, the Yutrung ruler thought he had a leg problem. Maybe, maybe people in the audience say, she's like, well, look at my walk. The real problem is that I'm walking. I'm walking well. And Jesus says, I ain't looking at your legs. I'm looking at your life. Just like the paralyzed man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you got a leg problem. And I'll heal that. But there's a bigger issue that I want to get to first. I want to speak to your life. Your sins are forgiven. Let me, let me deal with the heart. Then we can deal with what's going on with the hands. You see that? And so, but sin loves to masquerade and make us feel like, man, the only problem, I, I remember sharing the gospel with a young lady that I was interested in in the ninth grade. Did I ever tell y'all this story? Is this being recorded? <laughs> um, <laughs> I never forget this. Here I am, you know, Captain Vigilante with the gospel or whatever. We're on the phone. And, um, and I'm like, um, well, you know, you need to, you, you, need to be, you know, what's your relationship with the Lord looking like? Oh, I, you know, I, I don't need, I don't need that. You know, I was like, no, 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 everybody needs Jesus. No, no, no. She says, the only thing I do is cuss and have sex. I really don't need Jesus. I mean, I, that, that's the only thing I do. There's people out there that's murdering and, and, and killing and, you know, slinging drugs and whatever. So I'm none of those things. All I do is those two things that I mentioned earlier. And, uh, and, and I don't really don't need Jesus. I don't need any Holy Spirit. In other words, she's looking, she looking at her legs, not her whole life. When we look at our legs, we just say, when, and, and when we, we're looking at the thing that is immediately in front of us. When I look at what is immediately in front of me, I'm feeling all right about life. This is my immediate problem. This is all I need to get addressed. But Jesus says, no, I want to look at the whole you. Right? And so um, sin immobilizes, desensitizes, and then it masquerades. It always makes them want to make us look at something other than the whole issue. It likes to localize itself. Well, uh, of course, I would. you ever heard people say, oh, I would believe in God if he would just come down and fix this singular problem? They always have this singular problem that they focused on, that if Jesus would come and liquidate that, then they would just give their whole lives to him. And Jesus says, nah, I know better than that. I've, I've seen this movie before. As a matter of fact, I wrote the script. And then finally, sin trivializes. It trivializes. It trivializes the, the, the authority of Jesus. This is what the scribes were doing in the audience when they saw the man being handed down and Jesus looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. They immediately trivialized the power of forgiveness and the authority of Jesus because they were saying, who can forgive sins except God? And, and, and Jesus says, well, just so that you know that I, the Son of Man has power to both forgive sin and to heal, just so that you know that he has power to forgive sin, let me go ahead and, and, and do the thing that you think might be hardest. So whatever you think is the hardest, I got you, right? I'm going to heal this guy. And so... Sin comes into our lives and it's living in the hearts of the scribes. It trivializes the authority of God. It says things like this. I've tried religion and it doesn't work. Uh, In other words, um, I've kind of entertained the claims of Jesus and it really didn't produce the outcomes that I wanted. That's what sin does. Uh, Sin puts people in a position where they say, I'm more of a spiritual person. I read my Bible and I pray, but I'm really not interested in the church. I'm going to close with this. <laughs> to the person who say, if you're sitting in the audience, hear me carefully. If you're watching on wherever, hear me carefully. When a person says, I've got a relationship with Jesus, but I just don't want a relationship with his church. I want you to think about the fact that the Bible refers to the church as the body of Christ. And Christ is the head. What you're saying 
is that you want a relationship with a head that is decapitated from its body. Or if you're the person who says, you know what, I'm interested in just some of the features of the local church, but I'm not into all of that Jesus stuff. You're interested in having a relationship with a body that has been decapitated from its head. Like, like, like the, the, they, are, they, are, they are one in the same. Or, because the Bible also refers to the church as the bride of Christ, you are the person who says that I want to do business with the, with the I, I'm just going to do business with God, but I ain't interested in the church. What you're saying is, you want to come over to my house and have great fellowship with me, but you prepare to fully disrespect my wife. Or, if you're saying you like some of the features of the church, but you don't want anything to do with all that supernatural stuff, you're saying you want to spend some time with my wife, but you don't want to have anything to do with me. All of these images are equally as grotesque. And they should be. Because the, 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 the lunacy of thinking that you can have a relationship with the Lord and not have to do any life with his body. Thank you for that. Um. <laughs> the, the, the idea... The idea that you can have relationship with the Lord and not with his body or with his body and not with the Lord, they're, 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 they're equally crazy. And so just as ridiculous as those images sound, they should. And I believe that that's how the Lord has loaded the scriptures. Uh, Christian community and communion with the Christ are, are, are part and parcel of one another. Um, and therefore, um, here are some features that I believe that we desperately need in our lives that we see in these four men who brought this brother to Christ. We need the intercession of others, and we need the intervention of God. We don't want to separate them. I, I believe that there is oftentimes a desire to separate the unique features of what the church provides, right? We need intercession of others, and we need the intervention of God. We need those brothers carrying that stretcher. That's a very super practical work, but we also need a Jesus who can speak to both sin and sickness. That's a very supernatural work. I need the community of others, but I also need the communion of God. Yes, I need those brothers who took me on the stretcher to go see Jesus, but I also need repair of my relationship because he says your sins are forgiven. That means that that man walked away with a full-blown relationship with the Lord from that point forward. I need confession with others and confession to God. The Greek word confession is what? Somebody in here knows it. It's homo legeu. You've heard me say that before, right? Homo. Same. Thank you, brother, because they was logeu to say. When I say the same thing about my sin that the Lord says, that's when salvation takes place. If you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? When I confess my faults to one, to one another, when we can get on the same place, I'm not trying to hide my sin. That Healing takes place, wholeness takes place in Christian community when we get together and we're saying the same thing. It's not one person saying, well, you know, um, I have a little bit of a problem with. No, brother, you are in sin. You don't have a little bit of a problem with. Let us say the same thing about this. And let's go before the Lord. Right? So you see the power of confession? It's not just fancy words. It is a powerful feature in Christian community and a powerful feature in communion with God. And this concludes kind of what we're going to do today. Uh, I want to close in prayer, and then I want to uh, open with uh, a blessing for our meal, and then I'll, I'll turn you back into the hands of our, um, 
um, funeral directors, uh, James and John, right? <laughs> They'll lead us from there. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I am thankful to you for every, uh, every opportunity to gather with your people and also every opportunity to see your word. Will you let, the, um, will you let these principles uh, brew deeply within us, become very much part of who we are? And, um, and then, Lord God, for the heart that is in the room or even perhaps listening online that is um, contemplating these deep truths, um, I pray that they would no longer let their sin trick them into a masquerade of believing that there's just one or two little features that they need to fix in their life, but that you're interested in holistically speaking to their sin as well as to their, to their sickness. Um, this we ask in the masculine and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Um, I pray that uh, also, Lord God, for our meal together, that uh, we wouldn't just eat a meal, but there would be a new richness to our fellowship and our communion that would inspire us to, to connect more deeply Uh, with this unique fellowship that you've brought us into by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.